God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. I do want to ask you, what in the world did you do to my church? Where did everybody go? Did we effectively finally run everybody off? Okay. Yeah, you let them know it is okay to come on Wednesday nights. Now, our students will be with us starting next Wednesday night and for the summer. All right. And uh, we'll um, uh, give you information and communication as uh, we need to. All right. also want to say to you that um, uh, Sunday I'm going to be telling you that the following Sunday, May 12th, Richard Gray, who chairs our Great Commission's Facilities Committee, is going to be giving you a bit of information. Now, there are uh, no details. Uh, repeat after me. No details. No dollars. No design. Okay? That, that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be simply an update, and he's going to share with you some of the mind of the Great Commission Facilities Committee. All right? So no details, no dollar, no design, and, um, uh, and so that, that's what we're going to be doing. I don't want to overpromise. I want your expectations to be low. The committee is not ready to go that far yet, all right? But uh, we do feel like we're at a point where we need to begin to update you a bit more regularly. They're at that point, and they're doing a very good job. It's taken a while, but it should. Uh, I've warned you and told you it's probably going to be bigger and greater than you're now imagining. You need to think through and pray through that. Told you back when the committee got started that everything is on the table. So no one should be surprised at all by anything that Richard says. If you read the beams and if you listen to the pastor, which both those sometimes are doubtful for some people, but if you read the beams and listen to the pastor, uh, you will not, you will not, you will not be surprised by anything Richard says on Sunday, okay? So he's going to be giving you some information then and should not be surprised in subsequent uh, reports from them, all right? So please keep that in heart and mind. We're looking tonight at Genesis chapter 34, and I want to talk about the woes of worldliness. What is worldliness? It uh, is something that's not talked about a lot today and uh, is, is not. Uh, sometimes the message, the biblical message about worldliness can be so sharp that preachers shy away from it. I've got to tell you, though, that if it's in God's Word, I feel obligated to share it and not to hide it from anyone. And I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, God's Word is good food, and I, I don't hide these things from God's people. And I don't want to be ugly, I don't want to be sharp. Uh, I hope not to have any sharp edges to me to where you bump into me and you get cut. I don't want that. But um, quite frankly, I, I don't want you to stand before God, sweet people, on that final day in judgment and be shocked and surprised because as a pastor, I failed to deliver the message of the Word of God. I won't do it. Uh, I, won't, I won't be unfaithful. Uh, I love you too much and you need good food from the Word of God. And so uh, the scripture has a lot to say about worldliness, and it's a frightful thing. Uh, what is worldliness? Well, simply put, worldliness happens to be popular, acceptable sins. Okay? For that reason, murder is not worldliness. Uh, no one in our world today, uh, outside the Christian faith, no lost person in our world today uh, approves of murder. They just don't. There's some who commit it, but quite frankly, it's not worldliness. It doesn't qualify as worldliness because murder is not a popular sin. It's a sin, but it's not popular, all right? I will tell you what worldliness is, though, and give you an example. Watching filthy, sexually-oriented entertainment, that's worldliness. 
Uh, and I, I want to be as delicate as I can be. I don't want to go into detail, which is a signal that I'm not going to be de delicate and, you know, avoid a lot of detail. But uh, the truth is, is that those experiences are actual live experiences that were filmed and people are enjoying them. And it tends to desensitize the Christian to the horror and the perversion that takes place, even in normal consensual relations outside marriage is what happens. That's worldly. No Christian person should ever enjoy that kind of thing. Now, I will tell you, I enjoyed back in the 90s, Walker, Texas Ranger. I enjoy Walker, Texas Ranger today. It's violent at times, and Chuck Norris always gets the best of people, but the morality of it is correct. The good guy wins, and the bad guy goes down in flames, usually with the help of Chuck Norris's heel, Okay. So um, uh, I'm not against all entertainment. I want to let you know that. Uh, I'm not against necessarily all R-rated movies like uh, The Passion of the Christ 20 years ago, um, um, some kind of um, uh, World War II or Vietnam uh, movie. As long as it doesn't celebrate sin, I'm okay with that. It cannot celebrate sin. It cannot be anti-God, anti-truth, anti-righteousness. Same is true with television, same is true with music. Otherwise, it is worldliness, and God's people really have no business looking into it and being a part of it. Well, Genesis 34 is an example of heartbreaking, heart-wrenching worldliness. What happened is that Dinah, a little country girl, comes uh, to uh, a city and uh, lives there, and she's not prepared for the uh, wiles of a young man by the name of Shechem. And he uh, gets with her. They end up having consensual relations. And um, uh, it horrifies uh, Jacob's brothers. And the end result is that Jacob's brothers go to that town and completely slaughter every man in the city. That's what takes place. In Genesis chapter 34. Um, here, Dinah and uh, Levi and Simeon and Jacob and Shechem all demonstrate the woes of worldliness. Now, why would we say that? A couple of reasons come up from the text. One, worldliness abuses God's gifts. There's sexuality in the passage with Dinah and Shechem, beginning in verse 1 all the way down to verse 12. And it says that uh, Shechem, uh, the prince of the country, saw Dinah, and he took her and lay with her, and the scripture says violated her. Now, there are some that say a violent act took place here. I don't think that's what happened. I think spiritually what happened is that she was violated, although I think that she was a willing individual in all of this, and let me tell you why. Continue reading in the text, verse 4, uh, he's got very, very strong romantic feelings. Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. And that's oftentimes what would happen. And then in verse 18, it says something about Shechem, the young man, that is quite impressive. And it says in verse number 18, And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's sons. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Uh, the word violated here is used for normal relations. And it added to the romantical feelings of verse number 4. And I say romantical, I'm quoting alfalfa. But um, the, the romance in verse 4 and then the honor in verse 18, I think what you have here is that spiritually she violated the law of God. He did as well. He talked her into it. And um, that's what takes place in the text. 
The problem is, is that worldliness abuses God's gifts. This kind of relationship within marriage is a gift of God. It is a gift of God for a large number of biblical reasons. But whenever worldliness takes place, there is a violation and abuse of God's gifts. I think, for example, of the individual with a great singing voice who uses it to sing about violence against law enforcement and about women and uses ugly, derogatory terms for other people, especially women. You know, I'm thinking, hasn't anyone got the news that you don't say things like that about women? I don't care how popular and attractive the music is. And, um, uh, and I'll, let me ask you something to think about this. What if sometime after he became an international superstar, Elvis had rededicated himself to Jesus Christ? What if? Can you imagine the powerful team he could have made with some evangelist and his stepbrother became an evangelist? Can you imagine what would happen? But Elvis was worldly. Elvis was very narcissistic. He's very selfish. Lived for himself and, uh, and all. Well, he abused God's gift and it ruined him. Uh, the same is true with, with uh, sexuality. Living together before marriage. That is an abuse of God's gift. Uh, assuming uh, a variety of things. And so that's what we've got here. Uh, I'll say also that um, uh, I remember when I um, uh, got to college, I was on the campus, and I remember hearing one young lady get real excited that her mother was coming up because she and her mom were going to go to the local mall and shop until they dropped. Now, that's a 30-, 40-year-old phrase, but I'm thinking, that's worldly. Why are you so excited about that? And the thing I couldn't help but wonder is, are you tithing and giving to mission offerings? You know, spend three or $400 at the mall, and then you tense up whenever a mission offering comes up. And, and it would never occur to some people to give three or $400 to, to missions. That, that really concerned me and really bothered me because these things abuse God's gifts. Is it wrong to shop? No, just meet your needs. That's perfectly fine. But the truth is, is that... We are to take God's gifts designed for the glory of Jesus Christ and give them to Him. We've got to be a different people, and if we're not, no one's ever going to take us seriously. And so worldliness abuses God's gifts. The second thing is worldliness corrupts God's people. Now look at verses 11 through 16. Hamor listens to his son Shechem and comes to Jacob and suggests something that was rather common in the day. And that is, why don't we merge our two tribes together? We'll be at peace with each other and we'll pull this off with the marriage. All through the centuries, that has been uh, the behavior of the elites in a community, the elites in a society. Jacob was wealthy. He had done well his last six years with Laban, better than the first 14. And uh, they recognize him as a powerhouse with all those sons. He's got 11 now. Benjamin would be born later in the chapter. And they want to make peace with him, and they do that through marriage. You know, if you get, if, if, if two tribes intermarry, where well, you're not going to go after the other tribe, you might get a family member and take them out. And so they wanted to be very, very careful. So verses 11 through 16 uh, record this. Then Shechem said to her father uh, and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give you according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. 
But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because they, he had defiled Dinah, her sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. We'd be terribly embarrassed and it would denigrate us publicly. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you'll become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we'll give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we'll become one people, which Isaac and uh, Abraham resisted intensely. Esau did not. And Esau scorned in the pages of Scripture. Verse 17, But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He's more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city, and they spoke with the men, and they explained. And so all the men in the city agreed to this arrangement. Uh, They did that, and three days later, verse number 25, Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, the, the, the day when there's the greatest pain, that two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Now it goes on. They come home. Jacob finds out what's happened. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I'm few in number, they'll gather together Together against me and kill me, I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now, a little aside note here. Please, always be loving and always be gracious, but never, ever, ever let anyone get away with saying the Bible is anti-woman. Don't let them do that. Dinah is treated with honor by her brothers. Is precisely what happens in the text. Now, that's a little aside, but they were concerned about her honor and uh, is why they ended up doing this awful deed uh, against the citizens of that village. So they are suggesting deceitfully, let's integrate. Actually, the sons of Hamor, Shechem especially, said, let's integrate the two of us. We'll be, we shall be one person, one people is what we will uh, be And so what would happen is that they would compromise their religion with each other. It's precisely, they're of the same race, so don't think, you know, I'm, I'm speaking against that. No, 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 that's, that's, that's God's plan and God's will. But the religious integration is the problem that is taking place here. The result is murder. Now watch this. Dinah gets worldly. There is an immoral relationship. They suggest merging the two groups. Murder comes about. Romans chapter 6 verse 19 says there is such thing as lawlessness which leads to more lawlessness is precisely what happens. That's the problem with worldliness and so there is a degrading scale of corruption that takes place in the text. It starts off with a little worldliness and it ends up with the disaster at the end of the chapter. And the result is Jacob has to, has to get out of town. He's got to move and he's got to leave. Now, I want you to turn to a couple passages here with me real quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 9, Paul says, in a previous letter, I addressed to you uh, the need to stay separate from sinfulness. 
And he clarifies some things here in the text that I think are very, very important. Uh, There are some uh, Christians who end up avoiding worldliness by isolating themselves physically from the rest of the world. Uh, Paul addresses that here in the text. Among those are the Amish and some Mennonites. Uh, Mostly Ohio and Pennsylvania, there are a number of Mennonites Mennonites here in Georgia. The Mennonites are a bit more uh, merged with the rest of society. But Paul addresses that, and I want you to see why he does that. He said in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world, not lost people, or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world, which is precisely uh, most of what the Amish have done. They have isolated themselves from the rest of the world and are not effective evangelistically. The only way they grow is by natural childbirth. Or, is there, I can't imagine there being any other kind of childbirth. By childbirth, okay? That's how they grow. They adopt? The Amish do? The Mennonites do? Okay. Verse 11, But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, a Christian, who is sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner, not even to eat with a person. Now, that may be the Lord's Supper. That may be table fellowship, one way or the other. And then, so what Paul is saying here is, yes, I said don't keep company with people that are living in scandal, public scandal indeed, um, but I didn't mean lost people. I meant those that claim to be Christian. You engage in discipline and the old-fashioned practice of shunning when people will not repent and get right with God after several warnings, according to Matthew 18. And here's his reasoning in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside, outside the faith, outside the church? Do you not judge those who are in the inside, but those who are outside God judges? And so the point that he's making here is, is that we're not to do this with the lost and dying world. We don't isolate ourselves from the lost and dying world. We mix with the lost and dying world without embracing sinfulness for evangelistic purposes. We don't judge them. We don't criticize them. Let God take care of that. We're responsible for those inside the church is what we're responsible for. And I won't go into too much detail because almost all of it's confidential, but that does take place a lot in churches. I mean, hardly a week goes by that uh, someone on staff isn't having to correct someone in their behavior. And usually it's real quiet. It's real kind and sweet. And most of the time when we talk to people, they're already convinced they did the wrong thing and they quickly fix it and they get it right. Okay? That, <laughs> I'm telling you, you just don't know the stress that there is in ministry. Thank God you're not in it. Oh my goodness. If God calls you, you better be. But it's tough. It's tough. Because we shepherd people and we help them walk with God. So, uh, anyway, uh, that. Now, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And here the apostle talks about how to walk with people uh, in the world. So, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So, the first thing to do with people in the world is to pray for them. Devote yourself to prayer. Leonard Ravenhill said, We live in a generation that has never known revival God's way. True revival changes the moral climate of an area of a nation. 
Without exception, all true revival of the past began after years of agonizing, hell-robbing, earth-shaking, heaven-sent intercession. The secret to true revival in our own day is the same, but where, oh, where are the intercessors? He's entirely right. That's the first thing that we do. And then R.A. Torrey went on to say, prayer will reach down, down, down into the deepest depth of sin and ruin and take men and women who seem lost beyond all possibility of hope or redemption and lift them up, up, up until they're fit for a place beside the Son of God upon the throne. That is what happens when we pray for lost people. So the first thing is to pray. And then Paul says, pray for us. We've got to have the power of the Spirit. And that still stuns me and is so remarkable because here he is aged. He's been so effective and he's still calling out for prayer in his life. And uh, he's asking that God would open a door to us for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains. And so we pray, we speak, we suffer if necessary. It's not likely that you're going to make a big difference in the world with lost people to any measure unless you're willing to be ridiculed at the very least. And uh, Paul, well, he got thrown in jail. I guess we'd be grateful that's not happened to us. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And then walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. In other words, take every opportunity you've got with them. Don't waste any moment with a lost person at all. I went to the full service station on the corner of Alps and Baxter the other day. Uh, my tire was low, and I got it filled up and got gas. It's a little more expensive, but I knew I'd be able to talk to the young man there uh, that, uh, that did it, and I had one of the death life cards and an invite card in my pocket, and I took a moment to tell him, and I said, listen, I love coming here. This is the neatest place in the world. People still do full service at a uh, gas station, and I want to give this to you. I'm Charles's pastor, and I want you to come on to Beach Haven sometime. We'd like to have you there. And here is a card that's really important, this orange one. On the back of it are some Bible verses. And why don't you go home and read these in your own Bible tonight and ask God to speak to your heart. Folks, that was 30 seconds to direct a young man to the gospel of Christ, and he was appreciative uh, of it. And I will tell you, he's not getting a lot of that in Athens, Georgia. And the lost people you know are not uh, as, uh, as well. Let's be different and get the good news to people. Then he goes on to say, let your speech always be with grace. Now that's the thing with people that resist worldliness. Sometimes they're just mean. They, they get so worked up and so angry at the lost world's worldliness and even the worldliness of Christians that sometimes they, they can be caustic and mean. We, we don't do that. We always maintain a sweet spirit towards all people, especially in our speech, and we season it with grace. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. When you're kind and you're sweet to other people, there's something that happens to you mentally. Something turns on and you are able to answer them with grace. So, uh, let me say this. When I'm talking about worldliness, I am not talking about isolation. I'm talking about insulation, like your home's insulated. And it can bear wide variances in temperature. Because your home is insulated, it can bear very, very low temperatures in the winter. And it can bear very, very high temperatures May 1st, 2019. And in the month of July and in the month of August. That's the way to walk with God. And we insulate ourselves, not isolate ourselves, 
by following Colossians chapter 4. Well, my bride and I are going to leave right about now uh, in order to uh, get in the midst of some folks that are hungry and need the Lord. Uh, we have had a, uh, the BCM on the campus has had a cancellation uh, for the, the uh, chefs who were making pancakes, and I volunteered her yesterday for that. Uh, she likes making pancakes, and I felt so guilty about it, I decided to go with her, okay? That's why I'm dressed so casually. So let me pray. You pray for us that we'll have an opportunity to make a difference because all the, uh, any kid on the campus, I shouldn't call them kids, any college student on the campus can come. It's not just for Baptist kids. So uh, pray for us that we'll have some opportunities. Father, thank you for the good news of the Word, and I do pray that you'd help us to be sensitive and thoughtful about world.